Well, it's a privilege this morning to welcome you to Stone Hill Community Church, especially all you moms who have gathered in and given us just a part of your morning. Thank you so much for being here. Um, we welcome you here to our brick and mortar um, building. We also welcome you online, uh, should you be tuning in uh, now or later. And happy, very blessed Mother's Day um, to all of you. Um, I love kids. Do you love kids? I do. Kids are fantastic. And um, if you've been blessed with a kid in your life, chances are there's a mother close by. Because that's where kids come from. And so, uh, isn't that great? You, you came all this way this morning to, to figure this out. So I'm happy to share that with you. Um, but I love kids. They're fantastic. They have so much to offer. They grow up so fast. All the promers last evening, you know, for many of you have maybe kids in your family or uh, friends in your family's lives that went to the prom this week. I saw one post where someone said, you know, I can't believe you're in the prom already. Uh, I can remember back when you couldn't tie your shoes. And now you're in the prom. You're going to prom, junior, senior prom. Incredible how fast that goes. Um, Dave Hilbish and I were privileged to be a part of the middle school, college, and career day. Uh, this past week, and it was great to be able to interact with all the kids and the middle school level, just fantastic. We really appreciate all of them, and, and it's interesting. You walk into the gym, and then you see all the different displays. So there's a, the uh, Army display, and then there's bankers there representing for a career, and then there were colleges. Uh, Doug Ewell was there representing the canine and the, and the sheriff's uh, office and, and potential career and things and so when the kids would come in they were free to ask questions you know they, they were told you know just uh, ask your questions and at each of the tables and so one kid walks in and you can tell maybe I guess you know our our table was by the uh, the front door of the gym like when you first come in and so it was the uh, ministry and church career field table and then all the other ones so when you walk in the gym you see the the sheriff's office and everything represented Doug's table but when the kid comes up, he comes at our table, and maybe he just still had Doug's display in, you know, the sheriff's office display in his mind. And after thinking a couple hard seconds about what to ask us, he looked at Dave and said, so how many days do you guys bring the canine units out? And so now, you know, I never thought about that, but maybe, just maybe, that's another ministry option we have here at Stone Hill Community Church, bring the canine units out. And... Uh, Keep everybody motivated that way. But it's been great. They were awesome. And, um, and you're awesome. And thanks for loving them and caring for them and investing in their life. Because they need you. And one of the things that I'll be challenging here this morning on this Mother's Day weekend. And it's always a challenge because we're working our way through uh, the living in the lion's den. The people of God in exile. And that's a series that we've been working now for several weeks, and we are in Daniel chapter 6 here this morning, and we'll probably be in Daniel chapter 6 another Sunday uh, before we get ready to move on to chapter 7. And so, uh, but it's always a challenge to take what we're doing and where we're headed, blend it in with the special event weekends like we're having this weekend. Uh, but I think we're, uh, we have the mind of the Lord on this, and it seems like there's lots of things I want to talk to you yet out of Daniel chapter 6, and leadership, of course, is one of them. But as I kind of went over things this week, and as I thought about it here today, 
and, and last evening and into this morning, I want to talk to you about uh, and challenging this myth that the kids will be fine. And there's a myth that we all under the assumption that we live under this, no matter what we put them through, the kids will be fine. And I'm going to challenge that this morning, and, and I challenge it from just a biblical worldview of looking at what the Bible has to say about life, about parenting, about families and children, about our sense of identity, and all of these things. And so uh, the, the, uh, the challenge I have to the myth that the children will be fine is based on a lot of things. And one of the things that it's based on, when we look at Daniel chapter 6, we see there's a place in this incredible story where things go wrong for those who are endeavoring to take Daniel's life. Um, in fact, if we go ahead and read, and just if you would, just follow along with me as I read through Daniel chapter 6. So I want to talk to you about the children and, and the myth of the kids will be fine, and we're going to base it on something we read here in Daniel chapter 6. And then also, time permitting, I want to talk to you a little bit about Jesus. Not only are the children, there's children in our text today that are executed and they have no advocate for them. So the children aren't fine. And we also have a chapter here that points to Jesus. And historically, he's actually in the text because it talks about an angel that comes and shuts the, the mouths of the lions. So the lions' mouths are open, the angel shows up, shuts their mouth. All right? And so we see like a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus and based on what we see in Daniel chapter 3 there's good evidence to point to the fact that this is probably another pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus so historically he's in the text but prophetically what we see in Daniel chapter 6 is the foreshadowing a mirroring of what happens in the life of Jesus and then the a final thing I'd like to talk to you about is the gospel and that is that uh, there was a law that couldn't be changed in the Medes and the Persians and God faced that same dilemma. There was a law that was broken. And how would he change it? How would he, how could justice or how could uh, salvation be achieved in light of this? Well, God has done it in and through Jesus. And that's the gospel. And so there's these three things that we need to deal with and talk about out of Daniel chapter 6. And let's just read through all of it. But I'm going to have a special, a special focus on verse 24 when we talk about the children part of this message and then uh, you'll need all of the chat all the verses in your fresh in your mind when we talk about Jesus and the gospel because there's parallels and so we'll go ahead and read through all 28 verses of this and it reads like this it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them one of whom was Daniel the satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss and so now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom at this the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs but they were unable to do so they could not they could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. He's about eight, 85, 90 years old at this time. And so he has lived an, an incredible life under several different empires and kingdoms. And finally he's about to finish up. And now someone is going to target him for his religious beliefs and try to be the source of his undoing. 
Finally, these members or these men said, We will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. And so these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators and prefects and satraps and advisors and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict, an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den, which is a form of execution. Now your majesty issued the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. And now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. And three times a day he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. He didn't change. He was consistent. These then these men went as a group and they found Daniel praying and they asked, asking God for help. And so they went to the king and they spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians which cannot be repealed then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty. Or to the decree that you put in writing, he still prays three times a day. And when the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. And then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law, the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. The stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his signet ring and with the rings of the nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. And then the king returned to his palace, and he spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. And at the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. And when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? And Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I, have, I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den and when Daniel was lifted from the den no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God verse 24 at the king's command the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children and before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all of their bones. So these were not arthritic, half-blind, three-legged lions. These were ferocious 
lions who were hungry and they didn't eat Daniel, but now those who con- conspired to destroy Daniel's life, have him executed, they have been destroyed. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language and all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I, assure, I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed and his d- dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Verses 1 through 28 of Daniel 6, a very powerful, well-known passage. And in fact, it's the passage on which all of our visual aids and the, and the, uh, the entitling of this whole series is built on Daniel chapter 6. I want us to go back to verse 24, if you would, for me on the slides. And we, we're going to read that verse again. And I want to just to draw some things out at this point in the text. Because we read here where the king's command, at the king's command, the, man, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And that's very disconcerting for a lot of people. It's a problem because it, it affronts our sense of justice and how this has transpired. And I'll explain in just a second. Before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. And I would say before we stand back in condemnation of a Medo-Persian cultural value, especially in an honor-shame society where um, you either brought honor to the family or you brought disgrace to the family, dishonor to the family. We have a king here who, has, who is living consistent with his culture and his cultural beliefs. Uh, a king um, who, who lived with the value, uh, and the value said that if the if the leader of this family, he has wives and children, if we execute him, his wife and children, the children are going to grow up someday and there'll be revenge. And so they operated in this culture in a way that would ensure the safety and protection of the monarchy. And so this is part of the cultural value that they have. It's not right. If you notice, God did not ask him to do it this way. Daniel doesn't endorse this. It's a Medo-Persian king who is doing what his culture insisted that he do in light of the values that they had at the time and how they dealt with things. And so God isn't endorsing this or espousing this. And and what we don't read as well is that we don't see that the children um, who are executed in this way, we don't see that their eternal destinies have been altered or that they're eternally damned. No, their mom and dad, especially their dad, made a bad decision. And he jeopardized his whole family because of a decision that he made. And before we stand back and condemn an ancient Medo-Persian king for what he has done here, in Daniel chapter 6, we have to ask ourselves the question, and not just a Medo-Persian context, but in an American context, have we positioned our children to be crushed? 
have children been crushed? One of the most destructive myths of our time is that the kids will be fine. And when it comes to topics in our culture, and yes, we're an American culture, but we, I think what you will hear and what I hear and what I read and what I sense in American culture today is that I hear them saying, stop throwing us into the lion's den. You're throwing us into the lion's den for something our mother and our father maybe. Our father, for sure, even our mothers have been contributed to. And one of the most destructive myths of our time, like I said, is the kids will be fine. But children will never be fine when, if we prioritize the desires of adults over the needs of children, they'll never be fine when we operate under that prevailing cultural myth that the kids will be fine. No fault, divorce is one thing. Well, the kids will be fine. Homes without a mom or a dad, the kids will be fine. Artificial reproductive technologies that separate kids from their biological moms and dads, well, the kids will be fine. Same-sex parenting, the kids will be fine. So when we prioritize the desires of adults over the needs of children, the kids will never be fine. Children are expected to sacrifice their fundamental rights on the altar of adult desires. You're going to hear a guy talk next week. And uh, by the way, if you've got the bulletin insert, um, you, it was referenced earlier in the announcements. And one of the things I just would just clarify for you that uh, when the speaker talks next week at 845, you can see a list of the topics that he's going to address, the questions he'll, he'll answer. And then it says 11 a.m., but it's actually 10 a.m. next week. So we want to invite you for breakfast. Be here and uh, hear an incredible talk on this topic, uh, the pro-life message made simple and compelling. And then also thinking rightly about this issue and bringing clarity and grace to the defining moral issue of our day. And in case you haven't noticed yet, we're in a very critical time where there's a lot of battles being fought, issues being, wars being waged, ideological wars have been, is, are raging and, and is it possible, what does the Bible teach about the nature of the human embryo? And what kind of issue is abortion for the church? And is it possible for the church to be, vo to be a voice for the unborn while nurturing our grace-extending community for those who maybe have made some mistakes in this area of life? And so he's going to do a great job. And, and maybe you remember when Jeff Keaton was here a, um, a few months back. And he talked about a guy by the name of TJ, right? And TJ was went to college, and he tried to keep it a secret for as long as he could that he was a believer, and he, and he believed in, you know, a biblical worldview, and, uh, and he lived for this, and, and he represented this, and finally the day came when the, the professor had them debating this very issue that we're going to have discussed next week and, uh, and presented, and the kids always liked TJ because TJ won all the arguments. He won all the, the debates that they had in the college class. And uh, so they present this issue, and nearly everybody in the, in the college room went to one side of the room representing 
you know, like pro-choice position. And TJ and one other guy went with TJ because TJ always won the argument. So he, he didn't care. He was going to go with TJ because TJ, TJ always won. And by the end of that debate in the college classroom, everybody in that college classroom had moved from a pro-choice position to a pro-life position because TJ represented it well. And it's been my vision that our church and the young people of our church would represent the issue well. In a pro-choice position, other must die so I can live. And in a pro-life position, we die so others can live. We sacrifice so others can live. And when we look at the issues and we look at we, we hear a lot about social justice that's been discussed and, and we will never achieve it unless we first secure justice for individual children of all ethnicities, nationalities, and social classes because they all have a right to life regardless of those things. And they have a right to a mother and a father. And the children are crying out, stop throwing us into the den. They are crying out. And if you could pull, pull and pull all the children and young adults together under the age of 18 especially and give them the mic this morning. And if they could say what they really felt like saying to a culture that's throwing them in the lion's den. The first thing that they're going to say is we want parents who love each other. That's what they want. And so they're going to say, I mean, you know, these guys... Here in, in Daniel's situation, these children had a dad who wasn't mature enough to handle the injustices of life. He, they weren't mature enough to get past life's realities. They were being overlooked for a promotion. Um, they were doing criminal stuff. They didn't want to be exposed. They had prejudice. All these things are traceable in Daniel chapter 6 and how they were handling this situation. And they couldn't handle it. And they're going to take Daniel's life and have him executed and pull a, a legal stunt to have him executed. And it's going to ruin not just their lives, it's going to ruin the lives of their entire families. The wives and their children were thrown in the lion's den because of a, of a dad who couldn't grow up and be the adult in the family and lead his family. And, and so kids are saying... We want parents who love each other. They, they are saying, stop abandoning us in this process of marital conflict and, and, and no-fault divorce. Stop abandoning us. We want to be with you both. We don't care if plenty of other kids in the world have it worse. We still want you both in our lives. And they yearn for the missing mother and the absent father. Listen, I've been in pastor store work a long time. And I understand when adult refuses and adult refuses to act like a grown-up. I know there's physical abuse. I know there's mental abuse by spouses or parents. There's adultery. There's abandonment. I get that. And that is, we understand that. And there's never a place for that. And hard decisions have to be made. But there are divorces for far lesser reasons. 
And so if I'm speaking from a child's perspective, here's what seven-year-old racer says about it. He says, going back and forth bugs me. I like seeing both my parents. But when I'm at my dad's, I miss my mom. And when I'm at my mom's, I want to see my dad. And so every night I miss somebody. Slide 54, Katie Faust says uh, in her book, Them Before Us. And so many times our culture has it us before them. And uh, she writes to the theme of them before us. And she says so often in divorce, it says that we won't do the hard work that marriage requires. So here, children, you handle it instead. And so what the kids are saying in culture today is that we want parents who love each other. Parents who, who provide a home and a family that gives the stability of having a mother and a father present. Second thing they're going to say is not only do we want parents who love each other, but we long for a father and we long for a mother that is present. A, a father, a male father, and a female mother that's present. And the children are crying out, especially to the LGBT parent. We love you, but we want our dad in our lives. And we're not bigots if we have a God-given father hunger that two mothers can never provide. You know, it's interesting, as soon as same-sex marriage became a law... Everybody who still believed in traditional marriage was labeled a bigot. And I still remember this. And I, have, and, I, and I have issues with gay marriage from a biblical worldview perspective. And one of the biggest issues I have is that it makes it legal to deny a child at least one of their parents. And so the problem with gay parenting isn't so much that gay parents can't be incredible parents. They can be incredible parents. The issue is it's the missing parent that's the issue. So a, les a, a person who, who lives the life of a lesbian can be an incredible mom. She just can't be a father. And a man who lives his life as a gay man can be an exceptional father. He just can't be a mom. And so when children are raised in same-sex-headed homes, they will always be missing one adult to whom they have a natural and a legal and a God-given right. And so children suppress their own longing for the missing parent just so they won't hurt a mom, two moms, or two dads. We're throwing children into the den. And gay marriage is an unjust law for that very reason. It has inflicted far more damage on children than the pain that supposedly is eliminated for gay and lesbian couples who want to have children. So this morning I'm contending before you rise up and condemn a Medo-Persian king for crushing, having children crushed, do you live in a culture who are throwing children to the lion's den? Where every night they miss someone 
and they are denied a right to a God-given biological father and mother. Or, and we'll talk about adoption just a bit. And let me speak tenderly, for, but truthfully, adults can form any kind of consensual relationship with other adults. But the biological reality this morning is that you can't produce a child when you both are biological, where you both are biological parents if it's the same gendered marriage. It's impossible without some kind of intervention or assistance from other adults. And so being unable to reproduce in these same-sex relationships does not make you a victim. The children forced to lose their mother or father in order to conform to the romantic feelings of same-sex couples are the victims. I read the story of Brandy Walton this week. She's the daughter of a woman who presents and lives as a lesbian, and she was pressured, she says, to keep my feelings to myself. I couldn't say a word about same-sex parenting because it wasn't allowed. But she says, I spent my childhood looking up and watching planes go by, and I found myself waving at the planes, hoping that I had my father who was looking down at me and waving back. We can't suppress that or deny that. We're throwing them to the lines then. We want parents who love each other, they would say. We long for a mother and a father who are present in my life. And if we somehow could give the mic to the children today, we would hear them say, we need to be more than a commodity or an experiment. And one of the things that's on the rise and increase is that children born of surrogacy, and I speak to you professionally here this morning, children born of surrogacy via sperm or egg donation, they're crying out, we have a need to know who our biological parent really is. We want to know who that is. Of course we're grateful to be alive. My goodness, of course life is a gift, but we have an identity and there's health histories, and it's tied to a real living human being, and we want to know who that is so we can know who we are. And so when it comes to this thing that's kind of trending, it's so much more than just heterosexual couples wanting to have a baby. If you go to anonymousus.org, you'll find testimonies of donor-conceived children who share their stories without fear of identification retribution. And one gal who was donor-conceived, she said, I have no idea who my biological father is. I don't know if I'm dating my brother or my dad. I have no idea. And the culture is forcing me to live in this world. We have moved towards sexless baby-making. A lady born of this arrangement said that I feel like a science experiment. I'm a designer product. I don't know what to do with it. In the 
culture in which we live. You can have a genetic mother who donates an egg, a birth mother who incubates that egg, and a social mother who raises the resulting baby. Three different moms that are part of the process of your existence in life. And when we think about birth, it's intended to be a continuation of the mother-child bond, not the moment an intentional primal wound is inflicted. And that intentional primal wound has been inflicted, and so now we're throwing children to the lion's den. We're crushing their identity, their sense of worth and value. If I could somehow hand the mic to those children in Daniel chapter 6, verse 24, they're going to look at you and they're going to say, I wish my parents wouldn't have thrown me in the line, got me thrown in the lion's den. You know, um, one, of the, one of the values that we have as a biblical worldview church is that somebody has to advocate for those who can't advocate for themselves. And as a biblical worldview church, the children are crying out in culture, stop throwing us in the den because children have rights and we have to defend a child's right to life, their right to their parents, and their right to flourish because they themselves cannot defend it. And no amount of money in government or government intervention situations or scenarios can replace a mom and dad. In fact, this morning, if you name whatever you want to name by way of teen unwed pregnancy the problem or teen suicide or teen addictions or teen homelessness, millions are spent to try to answer these questions and yet the cheapest biblical worldview perspective solution is simply comes to us. A mom and a dad. That fixes it. And if a biological parent isn't in the picture, a loving set of adoptive parents who hopefully have a biblical worldview where a child their needs are met, and when their needs are met, they are set up to thrive and prosper. It doesn't matter what ethnicity they are. It doesn't matter what their social status is or their other dynamics in their life, whatever those things may be. They can thrive because they have a mother and a father. And adoptive parents do such a ministry in the world. They mend a child with primal wounds, and adoption says, let me help. It's about the child. And third-party reproduction via surrogacy says, let me have, let me have. It's about me and my same-sex partner. And I want to say to you today, you're here, if you're here, you're made in the image of God. You have value. You have worth. You, have, you, you are not just to be shuffled here and there, not just sex-selected sex or starved of maternal and paternal love, robbed of stability, intentionally created motherless or fatherless. God is sovereign, and you're here because he's got you here for such a time as this, and you have value and worth, so much to offer. This week at the, at the middle school, one of the things, the privilege is not just answering the questions about what my career was like, 
because we've got some people, middle schoolers, who are interested in ministry as a vocation. I was encouraged by that, and it's incredible. Um, they would ask me sometimes about my degree, and I said, well, listen, I got a degree in the best-selling book of all time. What? You can get degrees in that? No, no I got two. I got a master's degree in the best-selling book of all time. You, you can get a master's in that? Well, what's the book, man? The Bible. And they look at each other, and they look at me, and it's like, oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. You got it. It's exactly what it is. It's the best-selling book of all time. It's a biblical worldview. It'll give you insight to life. It'll know how to deal with these issues, such as abortion and in vitro fertilization. It'll help you know how to deal with these issues of, in family and the, and the complex ethical and moral dilemmas that you and I face. And the reason I share this with you this morning is if the children are saying, stop throwing us to the lion's den, somebody intervene, somebody do something. And that's where you come in. That's where I come in. Children have a right to life. It, it's so painful for me to watch people that I love, that I care for, be so clouded with the issues of my rights and my prerogatives and my life and other people have to die so I can live. Going to Supreme Court justices' homes and painting, painting clothes hangers on the pavement to try to conform, to try to somehow be belligerent in changing a, a legal decision, and it's probably one of the biggest legal decisions in our time. But this morning, children have a right to life. It's a God-given right. They have a right to parents. And marriage is great because it unites two people and these two people to whom children have a right need to be united in such a way that they could invest in the lives of a child. Children need protection. Our culture aborts them. Our culture destroys them. Our culture destroys their innocence. Our culture confuses them with gender ideology. Our culture indoctrinates them with race hatred. Our culture is sexually exploiting them. We are throwing them to the lion's den. And the bodies of Christ, men and women like you, are to rise up and to be a voice for those who cannot speak. I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I've lived life. I've been a five-year-old. I've raised three five-year-olds. Some of you have five-year-olds. Five-year-olds are incredible kids. They offer so much, so many unique perspectives on life. But I'm here to tell you, based on empirical data, my own life and my own experiences, there is no five-year-old in the world that is explicitly gay, lesbian, transgender, or pansexual unless they have been groomed to be talk about those issues by an adult. There's no five-year-old that goes that, that direction. Any time, anywhere, any culture, unless they're groomed to go that direction. 
And we have leadership in our world, political leadership that now endorses transgender youth sex change operations, top surgery, hormone therapy. And this morning, I would just encourage you to use the actual, just revert to the brutal terms of what are of what is being debated it is not gender affirmation it is sex organ mutilation it is not top surgery it is double mastectomy it is not puberty blockers it is chemical castration injections call it by its name and it loses its power the children of our generation are rising up And they're saying, will you stop throwing us into the lion's den? Stop crushing us. Stop imposing an identity onto who we are and who God says we are. And I'm sorry to have to be so blunt this morning, but if you're teaching kindergartners anything about sexuality, if you're teaching first graders to be transgender, if you're hiding from parents when 12-year-olds transition, if you're adding a quote-unquote queer agenda to children's TV shows, if you're promoting drag queen story hour, it's all grooming. And the issues of our time have been crystal clear. And they are whether or not we should be allowed to terminate a baby in the womb whether men can become women and vice versa, whether the state or parents hold primary authority over children, or whether children can be hormonally and surgically mutilated. You know, it's somebody posted on Twitter when the the so-called ruling has been leaked, and and it, it has been leaked, and I'm sure that'll be continued to be debated and discussed and researched. But someone quoted, so congratulations. And they do this tongue-in-cheek, congratulations to women for making it to the top of the victim pyramid once again. It will be short, a short visit, though, because trans people will reclaim their spot soon enough. But enjoy this day while you're there. And somebody replied, with all the people taking turns on top of the victim pyramid, little children never get their turn. It's because they don't vote, they don't tweet, they don't mobilize, they don't advocate. They're 100% dependent on adults. And that's what makes taking the life of a preborn child so especially cruel. The most defenseless are destroyed. I stand before you this morning, and I would just encourage you to choose adoption. It's way better than abortion. Choose motherhood and fatherhood, even if it's terrifying thought. Choose abstinence, not just to keep from getting pregnant, but to walk in God's purity. Choose life. You know, um, when we look at Daniel, this whole chapter, it, he really does point us to the one who is the solution to all of these issues and these complicated questions. 
when we look at Daniel, and I just read it here this morning, and we, we've talked about children, of course, and the lion's den and things, but the overall look of the book and the, and the focus of the book, we, saw, we start seeing these parallels when you look at the broader scale of the Bible, and we not only see this issue here represented in Daniel 6, but we see Jesus in Daniel 6. And so Daniel is pointing to a Jesus. There's an, there's an angel that shows up, and more than likely it's the angel that shows up in Daniel chapter 3, where it's the angel of the Lord. It's, it's like a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. He shows up, and, and he ministers to Daniel in the lion's den. And then we start looking at other parallels. You know, a stone was rolled over the den that Daniel was thrown into. And not only that, but he was, he was, a sentence was pronounced over over Daniel's life, and there was a sentence pronounced over Jesus' life. And when, when we read about someone who was thrown into a tomb and sealed over with a rock who also came out, then we read, we, we read about someone else who was framed on false charges by Persian administrators, and it all rings a bell. When we look in Jesus' story, the Sanhedrin conspired against him, and the chief priest rose up, in alliance with the worldly powers to undo him. And his response was to go into the garden and pray, for like Daniel, this was his life pattern. And Daniel went and prayed three times a day toward Jerusalem, and Jesus in the garden pray, prays three times, three different times that the cup could be, he could be spared from the incredible cup that he was going to have to drink. And just like Daniel, he was arrested while prayer in a private location, the Garden of Gethsemane. Pilate worked to release Jesus because he knew Jesus was innocent. But in the end, both Daniel and Jesus are turned over to be executed. And amazingly enough, Daniel emerges without a scratch. And this is where the foreshadow and the reality separate. And that is that Jesus actually dies and when it's all said and done, Daniel says, after being delivered from the death in the lion's den, because I was found innocent, he says, in his sight, nor have I done any wrong before you, your majesty. He was vindicated of his innocence. And when Jesus came storming out of the grave on Easter morning, he was vindicated by God that he is, in fact, God's righteous one, the Son of Man who has come to save the world. And Matthew picks up on this gospel on, this, on the Jesus in Daniel chapter 6, and he picks up on the gospel. If we go to slide number 9, you're going to see it here this morning. Slide number 9, you're going to see it. There's charges of insurrection. Matthew writes about those charges. Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. And Daniel, we just read this morning, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you. So there's charges of insurrection. Next slide. There's also an, an innocent, um, the essence and the idea of innocence. There's an attempt to set Daniel free. The king, when he heard the words, was much distressed, and he set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. And in Matthew, we read that Pilate, he was sitting on the judgment seat, and he saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was be beginning, and he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. The Medo-Persian king, I don't know what to do. This is, a, this is not right for, for us to execute a good man. 
Daniel 6.15. There's a sense of being trapped. And we go to the next slide. Joseph took the body and he wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and he laid it in, in his own tomb, which had been cut in the rock. And then the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. Next slide. And the roll, they rolled a stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away and a, and a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. Next slide. He was sealed. So they went and they made the tomb and they secured it by sealing the stone and setting a guard, Matthew 27. And then here in Daniel 6, the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. I could have easily preached on Daniel 6 on Easter morning. Not only does Daniel give prophecies in Daniel 7 through 12, we're going to get to those, but his very biography speaks of one who is coming. And we've made mistakes in our life, right? We've made mistakes. We've made mistakes maybe in our marriage, in our family, and we made mistakes, and maybe, maybe we have been part of that crushing of a younger generation because of maybe we bought into the cultural values of our time. And maybe, maybe we have um, confused the identity issues rather than clarify it because of the decisions that we've made. Maybe we felt like life was about us, and so we made decisions based on that, that others must must be sacrificed so I can have the life I want to live. No, I don't want to be sacrificed to let others live. I want to live for me. And, we, and we've made decisions based on those assumptions. We all have. But this morning in the very biographical details that are given in Daniel chapter 6, you are being pointed to a Savior. And this Savior not only is Jesus here in Daniel chapter 6, but the gospel is here because, because the Medes and the Persians, that law could not be changed. And it could not be reversed. And God has a holy, righteous law. And that law could not be reversed. And the king Darius worked so hard to try to figure out a way to, to keep Daniel from being executed. And he worked so hard to try to pull that off. And he couldn't get it done. And the gospel says that God, is a, he has a righteous, holy law. And it can't be reversed. But because of God's love, he found a way to spare those of us who should have been executed. And he was executed in our place. He was sacrificed so that we could live. And so this morning, we see the gospel in Daniel chapter 6. We see Jesus in Daniel chapter 6. And we see the value of life and advocacy for children who, are, who are never get their place on top of the victim totem pole. We see it all right here. In Daniel chapter 6. And so this morning, wherever you are and whatever your life journey is, what we can't deny is that this morning you have an advocate in Jesus. And when we think about, you know, pastor, I, 
I love God, and so I shouldn't be in the lion's den in this culture. Like, I love God, and God should be watching out for me. And, and listen, you're in the lion's den this morning. We're going to be in the lion's den this morning, not because we love God, but because it, it, it's, it's not that we shouldn't be in the lion's den. We're in the lion's den because we do love God. That's why we're in the den. So we, we can't let anybody tell us, you know, to serve God means you escape trouble. To serve God means that you don't, you don't have trouble. No, no, to serve God in this culture, to be an advocate for those who have no advocate, to be a person that points to Jesus and, and what he's done for the world, to be a person that lives it in light of biblical truth. It means that you're going to find trouble just because you believe in that. And you stand on that. You're going to find trouble. It's just part of, of, of how it's going to go in life in the lion's den. It's interesting to me in Hebrews 11 where it speaks in verse 33, who by faith some shut the mouths of lions. And it's a clear reference to Daniel. But immediately after that, the book also talks about they, some were tortured and some Um, faced jeers and flogging and some were stoned and some were sawed in two and some were put to death by the sword and they suffered other punishments because they were faithful. How loud does the lion have to roar to make you flee? Can I encourage you this morning? Will you advocate those who are being thrown in the lion's den? Will you love them? Advocate for them? Will you point your family and your culture to Jesus? And will you hold up the hope of the gospel? That a God whose law could not be reversed was somehow overcome in and through Jesus in the gospel. And you've been saved. You've been rescued. You've been set free. You know, a couple of weeks ago, and I tell this now because, and I'll wrap it up with this. I tell this now because an announcement was made just like as late as like yesterday, I think, or maybe the day before. But I got a call from Matt Gaff. Matt said, hey, I need to, we need to meet. And I said, okay, me and Amy are going to talk to you. I said, okay. And we sat down and we had a conversation. And uh, it was a great conversation. I appreciate Matt and Amy and little Liam. And they get to the point where I think, uh-oh, I'm not sure what this is about. As a pastor, you know, you get lots of different people come in and want to talk and have a conversation with you. I'm not sure what this is about, but then it comes to the place where he says, I think that Amy is expecting a baby. Yes. Yes, Amy is expecting a baby. And so I get a big grin on my face. How can you not smile, right? And, you know, uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful announcement. We're so excited. And we had a, just a beautiful discussion there. And yet Matt said, you know, he's kind of thinking out loud, you know, I'm going to be like 55 when my kid is in elementary school. Doing the math. 
but they love their baby. They love that little baby already. And they're committed to the beauty of that baby and that life. And we'll be praying for Matt and Amy and that baby. Because they made a decision. You've made that decision. Some of you moms have made this decision. Dads have made this decision. It's them before us. To use a phrase from Katie Faust. It's a, we sacrifice so others live. And that's the beauty. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you so much for this day. And thank you for the beauty of life. For the beauty of this moment on this Mother's Day. I'm so glad for those who have championed the family. And they have loved us. They have worked so hard. We just especially are grateful talking about advocacy for children and families. Mothers have championed that over the years. They got us ready and got us out the door and they found missing shoes and homework assignments. They got us to school on time and we get home, it reverses, they do it all again. They take care of husbands, and sometimes of aging and ill parents. Wow. All the while balancing a family and trying to make sure that, that the children in their life have an advocate. And I want to thank you for our moms here this morning. Thank you for their love and their sacrifice. Thank you for our dads who support them in this role. And then, Father, I pray for our church as a biblical worldview church. I see the trend. I see what's happening. I think we all see what's happening. And it, it, is, it is so tragic. And I just pray that you would give clarity to us in the days ahead as we endeavor to be the body of Christ and as we endeavor to advocate for those who are in positions where they long for mom and dad, they long for a sense of identity and purpose. And I pray, God, that through our church and our church family, we can communicate that message. And so you be with us here this morning on this Mother's Day. And we want to honor and glorify you with our lives. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. I want to thank you for being here this morning. There's a pink carnation for all you moms as you're walking out of here today. So if you stand with me, make sure you get that. Next week, 845, be here. It's going to be a great presentation. All right? We'll see you then. Have a great week.